This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer. In this conversation, Broderick and I talk a lot about his experience um, growing up in the Baptist and Church of Christ traditions and then finding his uh, current place in the Episcopal Church. It's a really wonderful conversation, and I'm very happy to share it with you. Um, I want to get straight to it, so I'll have a little bit of a shorter introduction today. Um, But as always, you can rate and review the show on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show on Twitter at Pod. You can search for the Exvangelical Facebook group, which now has over 3,000 members on Facebook. Um, And you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. All right, everyone, let's get straight to it today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer. He is the priest on staff at St. John's Cathedral in Capitol Hill, Colorado, and he is well known for his, um, his commentary that he provides in multiple publications as well as his absolutely wonderful Twitter feed that I imagine many of my followers and listeners may also know. Welcome to the show, Broderick. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you. Uh, we have been talking a bit um, uh, in preparation for this, but I, I would love to hear a bit about your um, just your your early years and and your first initial um, experiences in in church and your exposure to re- to excuse me to religion. So today I was actually in my office at work and came across the Bible that my parents gave me on August 10th, 1997. So that means I was about to head into second grade. Um, and I was in my fourth year at a small K through eight evangelical school in Fort Worth, Texas, where I grew up ages zero to 18. Hmm. And I mean, it was, it gave me a lot of flashbacks, um, about my upbringing, um, my parents who are still living and still together. Um, and there was this sense in my growing up years of kind of this palpable presence of God and of religion and of faith in my life, whether it was my grandparents or my parents aunts, uncles, neighbors. Um, I grew up with sort of this warm blanket of an extended family Hmm. um, and grew up within five minutes of all of my grandparents. So I don't take any of that for granted. Um, I was baptized at age eight, uh, so the year after I received that Bible, um, at the church that my parents were married in and that my maternal grandmother was the minister of music at Hmm. a black missionary Baptist church in Fort Worth. And my brother and I, who was two years younger than me, were actually baptized at the same time. And I remember saying to my mom um, that I wanted to be baptized so that I could receive communion. So at that time in, in our black Baptist tradition, you could only receive communion if you were baptized. I'm sure that, that it's the same way now. Mm-hmm. And and there was something about communion that was so compelling uh, to me. Obviously, it was um, in some way exclusive, which made made it even more appealing to me. Uh, but we were both baptized on November first, nineteen ninety eight, which is actually uh, the feast of All Saints, which is one of the four um, prescribed days for baptism in the Episcopal Church in which I am now a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so there has been this deep presence, 
sense of that which is beyond, of divinity, um, of the ineffable, of the invisible in my life from a very early age. And often my mother would, would wake us up, at, you know, in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., to look outside at some sort of lunar uh, event in the sky. And she taught us from a very early age the practice and discipline of awe. Mm, mm. Of um, awe not being something that just happens spontaneously, which it does from time to time, but something that you get out of bed and do. Um, Something that you practice, something that you discipline yourself, inconvenience yourself for. And so my mom was uh, and is a great teacher of awe, of mystery, um, of our smallness in this vast, vast universe in which we live. Um, When I was 13, I started going to a Church of Christ, which is a denomination predominantly in the South and predominantly white uh, through a vacation Bible school and began preaching in that tradition when I was 16. Uh, From home, I went to a small Church of Christ undergrad in West Tennessee. And while I was there, I was exposed to the Episcopal Church through the writings of N.T. Wright who is a Church of England bishop from a more kind of evangelical, small e evangelical uh, part of the Church of England. And through that whole process, um, I eventually went to seminary and was ordained in the Episcopal Church in 2015. So that's kind of a a quick run through of the last 27 years of my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that a lot of that resonates with me, especially. Um, so I grew up in a, a United Methodist tradition, and it was also similar in that you couldn't, at least in my congregation, I don't know. This is a denominational statement. Um, you couldn't receive communion without being baptized as well. Um, and so once a, I think I was twelve or thirteen, and it, it it was also a big deal to me, in that same sort of way. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested how that's very interesting that, that, you know, that was a similar experience that you had to that sort of, um, fascination with the, with the ritual of communion. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the great rituals of the black Baptist tradition in which I was raised is they had communion once a month and, on Communion Sunday, which was usually the first Sunday of the month, the sermon would end and the invitation or altar call would end. And then people who did not want to stay for communion would leave. There were like two families that never stayed for communion. And we knew exactly who they were because they never stayed. And everyone would then sit in every other pew. So everyone would leave their pews and then come and sit on one side of the church and sit in every other pew. The deacons, we had six deacons, they would all put on white gloves and there was a white cloth over the, over the altar table. And they would lift up, and when I was a kid, they would lift up the altar linen. And because the you know, you sort of saw these protruding, what I later learned was were crosses that were, that donned these communion trays. I actually, as a kid, thought that that was Jesus under the white linen cloth, mm. <laughs> um, which may say something about sort of my little C Catholic um, underpinnings from an early age. But I really, I, I thought, oh, well, that's Jesus under there, and they're taking the, the wine and the bread off of him and giving it to us. <laughs> and so the deacons would come by in their white gloves and serve us communion, and everyone would wait until every single person had received their bread, and then everyone would hold their bread up, and the pastor would say, 
um, you know, the words of institution. And then everyone would eat their bread and then he would say the words of institution for the cup and everyone would drink the grape juice. And after that, um, the deacons would come by and pick up the little cups from us. And my grandmother was at the piano and she would start playing the song called I Know It Was the Blood. And pew by pew, every person would get up, shake the hand of the pastor and all of the deacons, and then stand next to them until every person had shaken every other person's hand. Hmm. And we were lined up all the way around the sanctuary. And then the pastor, after we would sing that song, would say, um, and they sang a hymn and went out of the Mount of Olives, you are dismissed. And I, of course, lived through this ritual the first part of my life. And it was deeply impactful that the inconvenience of moving to another pew on a different side of the church and having to shake every church member's hand, it was this embodied uh, practice. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't just in your head that you were receiving the body of Christ and you were then receiving the body of Christ through a handshake or a hug or a kiss of the people that you sat in church with every week. And what a gift to be able to remember that these, I mean, those are my first memories as a human being on this earth, um, surrounded by love, surrounded by fellowship, surrounded by joy. And um, it's something I hope I never forget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very powerful. I'm also, I was also really struck by what you said about how, um, how you had the sense of, um, sense of awe um, that was sort of, that was imbued in you by, by, by your mother. And I, another sort of personal resonance was, is that when I, I grew up in the middle of Indiana and we lived in the country and every August my dad would p- pitch a tent in our backyard and we would watch the meteor showers. And that mm. was the, one of the most magical things that I, that I carry with me still. Like that was the sense of, you know, that's like, <laughs> that's like church outside of the walls of the church, you know, and that sense mm-hmm. of awe being that sort of thing that, that, um, throughout many sorts of phases of feeling, you know, a sense of faith or a sense of certainty or whatever, you still are oftentimes left with a sense of awe, which is, <laughs> can be comforting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what led you, what led you specifically to that, to start to go to this church of Christ church that you had, um, that you started to attend, um, during your middle school, high school years? that put you on that trajectory? They had a very strong youth program and it was a small church. I I only ever belonged to small churches growing up and it was a congregation of about 200 people. Our average Sunday attendance was about 140, 150. Church started at 1020, which I think is absurd. (laughs) No other church starts at 1020, Uh, but they, they started at 1020 and, um, it was a place that took the Bible very seriously. And I was a Bible student from a very early age. And I appreciated how serious they were with the text, how earnest they were about the text. And that resonated with me, that I was in a church that, that knew their Bible and, and um, took it serious, seriously and were enthusiastic about it and wanted to share their faith with other people. Um, I couldn't have told you at that time the word fundamentalist, um, but that they were and are fundamentalists. That church is still around. Mm -hmm. And I basically, through their influence, became a fundamentalist. Um, The church I grew up in probably is fundamentalist. I don't know. Um, Black Protestant Christianity in this country 
is very difficult to pin down as fundamentalist in many ways. Um, and that's something that I, I'm, I'm still kind of sorting out and trying to understand. Um, but this Church of Christ that I belong to was definitely fundamentalist. And to the point that I, you know, I had the practice and I learned it from my mom and grandma of writing in my Bible and all of that. And I, over time, became so rigid about tampering with the Bible uh, and not tampering with the Bible that I stopped writing in it, mm. hmm. which was a very telling sort of shift in the way that I engage the text. Um, because the idea in fundamentalism is what you see in the text is what the text means, which is what some literary theorists call a plain reading of a text. Now we know that no such thing exists, mm -hmm. that all of us bring a lens, baggage, um, biases to any text that we read. Uh, and no text says anything. Um, we interpret it and then decide what it says. Uh, but fundamentalism is based on the idea that um, we don't have biases, we don't have a lens, and we can understand something at face value. Um, and I certainly hope that fundamentalists don't take that kind of attitude to relationships or marriages or parenting or anything else, because nothing is ever as it seems. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that um, really appealed to me, the certitude, the certainty, um, this idea that God could be understood and God could be pinned down, um, and that everything could just be explained, that the Bible had an answer for everything. Um, I would often hear people in church say, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. And then the cynics among us would say, well, the Bible is silent about electricity. So what do we <laughs> say about that? And they would say, um, you know, there are things that are necessary in scripture and there are things that are expedient that go with scripture and electricity mics in church, all of these different things are expedient, um, not necessary. And so um, they had a very specific hermeneutic, uh, the way they read the Bible, the way they um, argued with outsiders about it, and um, they did not recognize the baptisms of people from other traditions. Um, they consider themselves the only denomination going to hell. They, I mean, going to heaven, sorry. And actually, they don't consider themselves a denomination. They consider themselves the authentic church founded on the day of Pentecost in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Mm. So I was basically in a group that um, flirts with being a cult. In many ways, you weren't. I wasn't allowed to read anything outside of that tradition. Um, you were always to be skeptical, even of people within your tradition who didn't understand things exactly the way that, that you did. Um, and of course, as is kind of the nature of Protestantism, um, the Church of Christ has multiple uh, factions and sects. Um, yeah because as soon as someone disagrees about one particular tenet of faith, then they have to, you know, they are compelled to go start their own <laughs> right. denomination from that. Yeah. Um, so there's no such thing as a big tent in churches of Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, as I kind of got into later teen years, 17, 18, 19, I did start, um, you know, looking at various traditions and authors and other people outside of the Church of Christ um, and really came up for air because that's not the tradition I was raised in. 
And I saw, oh my goodness, God might very well be at work in people outside of my little corner of Christianity. And so I started reading people like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, N.T. Wright, um, who were still, who still had, who were still kind of in the evangelical camp, um, but had a more expansive understanding of God and of scripture. Right. Um, yeah. So that was kind of my journey mm-hmm. through, um, through what I would say is white, um, fundamentalist evangelical Protestantism. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of, um, those sorts of authors that you mentioned there at, at the end, Rob Bell, McLaren, N.T. Wright, like sometimes I do feel like they, they can be sort of gateway authors <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, for people that might be in like a white evangelical space to understand and be exposed to broader types of Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting with, um, with, with N.T. Wright in particular, um, he, uh, I listened to, to you on, um, we're, I mentioned before we, we both, we have a connection in common, Kevin Garcia, and you talked on his, his podcast about, uh, about being sort of compelled by what N.T. Wright says about, uh, about the new creation and, and all of those things and being in like an active, an active work, um, and I, there's a really good essay that he's written called Jesus is coming plant a tree. And so I'm, I am curious how, how like coming out of a rigid, um, like a, a rigid sort of tradition there, what was the experience like? What did it, that period when you were starting to explore things, was it, um, was it sort of fractious and, and did it, sort of make you feel anxious or was it, did it feel more liberating and like you were exploring something and you like had air to breathe? It was, um, certainly a mixture of both. Um, I was able thankfully to begin to remember the way I was raised, which was, um, you know, taking the Bible seriously, but not taking it literally. You know, I was in a tradition as a, as a black missionary Baptist in which pastors would often say in the middle of a sermon, now use your sanctified imagination. So they would talk about um, the various stories in the gospels or parables or stories from the Hebrew Bible. And they would then um, do what our Jewish counterparts would call midrash on the text. This riffing and filling in the blanks and giving us a sense of what is possible with the text when you let your imagination go. Um, which is something that was, which was a muscle that, that had really atrophied with me um, mm-hmm. kind of during my fundamentalist phase. And so it was kind of a dusting off of this ability to engage with scripture in a playful and joyful way, hmm. um, in a way that I have really forgotten to engage with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, that's really great to be able to, to be able to come back to something like that. Um, especially if you, if you've been sort of ingrained that, that it is this inerrant thing that means one thing <laughs> that doesn't square with your experience either. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And, and, you know, Bishop Yvette Flunder, um, who was really a renowned gospel singer in the early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, I heard her at a conference a few months ago, and she has said, um, if you're going to be a literalist about the Bible, 
I don't exist as a um, black woman, as a lesbian um, who has been in a relationship with my wife for over 30 years. Um, I don't exist. There's no room for me in the Bible. Uh, and then she turned and said, I am the Bible. Um, and so this owning of the text um, and saying I'm not enslaved to the text, the text is a launch pad for me. And, and, and that's ultimately um, why evangelical, evangelicalism no longer resonated with me. Um, I don't think that God and scripture are synonymous. Um, much like Martin Luther, I see um, scripture as a cradle that holds Christ. That's what he would say about the Bible. Scripture is a cradle that holds Jesus. Um, it's, it's good. It's necessary. It is there. We learn so much from it. It keeps Jesus comfortable. It gives us some context. Um, but it is not God. Um, I don't pray to the Bible. I pray to God. I don't... Um, I don't know. Yeah, so, so that's why evangelicalism ended up ultimately, whether it was from my Baptist background or Church of Christ background, ultimately just did not resonate because my experience of God could not be relegated to a book mm. mm-hmm. or what I read about God in, you know, in a book. So it was flesh and blood. It was experiences. It was prayer. Um, it was the news. It was um, good arguments with friends about kind of the finer points of theology and politics. Um, God can be experienced in a number of ways um, that have absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. Um, And I'm comfortable with that. And that's why ultimately I was comfortable leaving evangelicalism. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, in that regard, what what was it? Um, you were, what was it specifically about the Episcopal tradition that really called to you and actually sort of spoke to you beyond, you know, God being relegated to a book? It was it was the um, the invitation to pray with my whole body and with my whole self, and to be able to be myself before God without feeling like there was a part of me or a part of my existence or experience that needed to be hidden from God. And so for me, the organ, and and also it was, it wasn't just intellectual or cerebral. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was an experience in my bones of seeing and hearing the choir process down the center aisle and the priest wearing, you know, chasuble and stole, and the centrality of the Eucharist of communion to weekly worship. Um, It was this comfort that Anglican tradition or Episcopal tradition has with history. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to say, um, this is who we've been, this is who we hope to become. and being very comfortable with that and not fretting over that. Mm. And then also mm. this sense, um, I, when I was Church of Christ, there was always this fear because of the literalism that if someone decided to be baptized, it was better for them to be baptized. If they you know, decided in the middle of the night to be baptized, it was better for them to wake up and be baptized in the pool in their backyard than to take the risk of getting in a car, being in a car accident, dying and going to hell because they were not baptized on their way to the church to be baptized. Mm. Yeah, that's very... (laughs) And within within the Episcopal tradition, there isn't this um, nervousness Hmm. about judgment and about God. Um, a God who is so rigid that that they can't admit you into heaven because you weren't baptized in enough time. 
And so as I really settled into the Episcopal liturgy and rhythm of prayer, this kind of preoccupation with my own sin and shame and nervousness before God gradually dissipated. I didn't even notice that it was happening. Um, I was sleeping better. I was more comfortable in my relationships with friends and family. Um, The liturgy of the Episcopal Church truly changed my life. I became a less nervous person. Wow. Um, And if you want to say that was a conversion experience, you may. That's not the language I prefer to use. Um, but I also think, I mean, I was what, 20, 21, I was entering a different phase of life. I was becoming an adult, um, as I was entering the Episcopal church. So some of it can be attributed to age and maturity experience. Um, some possibly can be attributed to the Holy Spirit. And some can be attributed to tradition as received in the Episcopal Church that I am deeply grateful for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, my dog just came over. Is making all terrible mouth noises. I apologize for that. Um, okay. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, he just wanted to be pet, so he's coming over here. Um, yeah, so uh, within I I am a recent Episcopal Episcop uh, confirmand, I guess, just like what last year. Um, so so I have a lot of what you're saying, sorts of, and uh, the sort of just um, story of, of you moving towards the Episcopal Church. I I I definitely resonate with that sense that that there is this feeling. When I'm in when I'm in a service that there's like things aren't frozen in amber, like they like they can be in other fundamentalist sort of locations uh, or or church services, um, and yeah, that is that is very freeing <laughs> um, when compared to the alternative. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. No, it is, um, and if people have been observing a certain tradition for hundreds of years, mm. whether it be the use of incense or of organ music or a vested choir or repeating, you know, prayers that have been said since the Middle Ages, um, there's something worth paying attention to there. Mm. It may not be compelling. It may not be convincing. You may not end up becoming an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic or um, Eastern Orthodox, but there is an integrity to the liturgy and to the tradition mm-hmm. that cannot be ignored. Um, and so many of my assumptions kind of as an evangelical Protestant about prayer, you know, we would always hear, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to write prayers out. You're not supposed to read prayers. Um, spontaneity was kind of one of the chief virtues of um, some of the evangelical Protestant circles that I was in. And, um, you know, sometimes I don't want to be spontaneous with God. I do just want to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, a prayer I learned when I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to just say the same prayer over food that I always said. Um, from, from birth on. Um, and so, no, spontaneity, yeah, spontaneity <laughs> is great, you know, You're right. um, but spontaneity cannot be, or, or, or the perception of spontaneity, because if you go to a lot of evangelical churches, they have a formula for prayer. Mm-hmm. They say the same thing every Sunday. Um, it's just not written down the way it is in 
in quote liturgical um, traditions. Right. So, so yes, that was a um, it, it resonated, and and also the fact that the Episcopal Church belongs to the worldwide Anglican Communion. It is the third largest Christian denomination or family of churches in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in seminary, we would see people from Kenya and Haiti and Australia and New Zealand who would visit the seminary and speak and do lectures and hold small groups. And um, so, so that, that little connection kind of to the broader Anglican communion um, is also like really important and central to my faith and practice as well. Mm-hmm. Being someone that's 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 now uh, a priest in the Episcopal tradition here in the United States, as well as someone that's been seminary educated um, and has this personal experience in evangelicalism and. Um, all of the things that you've seen and experienced and learned. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious, especially from people that are a- active clergy, is the sorts of um, really dynamics you see between the evangelical church and other mainline traditions here, specifically in the United States. But I mean, we could certainly talk more broadly about um, that difference. Uh, elsewhere, but it's already pretty broad of a, a topic here just in the United States. Um, it, really that being, in my experience, it doesn't seem that, that fundamentalist or evangelical churches have much dialogue with mainline traditions, and they also just don't seem to have much commonality as far as within their theology or the things that motivate them. Um, especially in this current political uh, atmosphere that we're in, um, what is? I'm just curious what your what what your experience is there in, in regards to that, as well as what might be um, what might be possible as far as getting people from those two these two different types of traditions that don't seem to talk to one another um, to be able to find. And even a starting point or a common a commonality in which that they can agree upon and then have either dialogue or be able to um yeah i i don't even i don't like at this point i i have so little sort of fate um hope that there could be a coalition between these different types of groups as far as this dynamic, how have you experienced and how have you experienced it and and what do you think it will look like in the future? Interesting. Um, I can speak to kind of how I think we got to this point. Um, in the early twentieth century, among some Presbyterians who were at Princeton Seminary, there was this basically what could be called a fundamentalist movement. It was a reaction to modernism and to modernity, um, to the theory of evolution, to the um, to a post World War One world, um, to chemical weapons, to a lot of uncertainty about the world and its direction. And that that was the birth of fundamentalism in many ways. I know this is an oversimplification, but you can track kind of that school of thought among fundamentalists. And, and they had, I think, if I'm not mistaken, what was called the five fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And those five fundamentals had to do um, with what they would call 
the inerrancy of Scripture, and these are things that they said were non-negotiables. So the infallibility of Scripture, the miracles of Jesus being literal, the resurrection of Jesus being literal, uh, the belief that Jesus' death was for the forgiveness of sins, his death on the cross, and that the virgin birth of Jesus through the ever-blessed Virgin Mary was literal as well. And they feared the modernists, um, especially like some of the early pastors at Riverside Church in New York City, um, were diluting the faith. Mm. Mm -hmm. And what eventually happened among a lot of Protestants, namely Southern Baptists, many Southern Presbyterians, what we understand as kind of the rise of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is that the fundamentalists in their midst took over their denominations. Southern Baptists, um, the fundamentalists among Southern Baptists solidified power in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And I could go down the list of when other fundamentalists and other denominations solidified power. And so what ended up happening especially as the mainline denominations were in serious decline. So the mainline Protestant denominations, whether it be the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodist Church, and others, what you would hear among fundamentalists, especially in the 90s, was these mainline Protestants, these liberal Protestants, are declining because they have left the faith behind. And we're growing because we have staked a claim in the faith and we are still true to the faith and they aren't. Mm-hmm. Now, what I the question I have for fundamentalists in any denomination who say things like that is now it's 2018 and every Christian denomination is in decline in the U.S. So how do you explain that? Right. Um, so, so there was an antagonistic relationship between evangelical Protestants and mainline Protestants from, from a very early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what that commonality is going to be. I think it's interesting as a liturgical Christian to observe that people in fundamentalist denominations like the Presbyterian Church in America, which is mainly in the South, and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and some Southern Baptists, or people with loose Southern Baptist ties, are beginning to observe the church year. Hmm. And so you'll see them marking each other's foreheads on Ash Wednesday like they're Episcopal or Roman Catholic. And I actually think that a reacquaintance with the ancient practices of the church is going to be kind of the focus of unity for evangelical and mainline Protestants over the next 50 to 100 years. Hmm. That a lot of the debates about the full humanity of women, of LGBT people, and any other group you want to insert will become secondary to our shared practices and values around baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. And that's been the unifying factor for Episcopalians, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, United Methodists, and others. And I think that there are some fundamentalist Baptist Presbyterians, etc., who are going to, to, to reacquaint themselves with the ancient practices of the faith and say, no, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not non-negotiable. No, an infallible understanding of scripture is not a non-negotiable baptism, communion, kind of the essential things of the faith. These are the Mm non-negotiables. 
because these shape how we live in the world, how we relate to one another. Um, a sacramental imagination, I think, is what's going to to cause unity. It's always been kind of the basis of unity. Um, and I don't think that that will change. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite things um, is a... Is a line from Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Living Buddha, Living Christ, which is about how it's not your belief that shapes you, it's your practice. You're, Absolutely. Yeah. It's your, it's your, your beliefs will change, but your practice is what forms you. And yes. And, and we have a, we have a phrase for that in the Episcopal church and it's prayer shapes believing, mm. um, which is loosely based on a um, Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex, orandi, lex credendi. Um, yeah, so so yeah, that that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you you've also talked about a bit throughout um, through other places where you've spoken and written is this idea of a um, what you've called a, a theology of survival. Um, and how that can differentiate for people that are in marginalized communities, whether that's because they are people of color, whether that's because they are queer, or because they are a multitude of things, um, because we are not just one particular um, qualifier. Um, we are fully human people with many different as- facets of our of our beings. Um, I would love for you to sort of talk about what that's um, what what goes behind that that term and and how how you perceive that to be um yeah i'm very fascinated by that idea and i've loved what i've heard you say before but i'd like to talk to you a little bit about what about that now as well yeah and it's not a theology of survival it's theology as survival oh uh, that's a very important distinction i'm sorry (laughs) yes so how do people do what what groups of people and individuals have done throughout history theology as a form of survival and and what caused me to begin thinking about this was a short interview with a roman catholic priest and theologian named uh james allison and father allison in this interview talks about theology as a form of survival because someone asked him as a academic and as a priest um, if he was, you know, basically living a luxurious life of privilege uh, in the academy. And he said, I've never seen theology as sport. I've never seen theology as a luxury. I've always, as a gay person, he's self-identifies as gay, under, and as a you know devout priest, Roman Catholic, have understood theology as a form of survival. Hmm. So there may be people who do theology um, as luxury, but I I'm not acquainted with many of those people. Um, I think about my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who at the age of 16 lost both of her parents within six months. And who I witnessed kneeling at the side of her bed every night. So for her, theology was a form of survival. She raised five children on her own. Her her um, husband left her when just soon after my mom, the fifth child, was born. And for my grandmother, her faith, her theology, the way she did theology was the way that she survived in the world as a black woman raising a family in the Jim Crow South. Um, For me as a queer black person, um, I've realized that the way I do theology is a form of survival. It's the assertion of my humanity, of my presence, of my body um, in places um, where I traditionally did not belong. Um, I think about in scripture, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who is, you know, suddenly meets St. Philip on his road back to Ethiopia. And the eunuch is reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. 
and it's a weird passage that talks actually about um, this figure who's being led as a lamb to slaughter. Um, and this eunuch asks Philip, is this about the prophet or someone else? And you look deep enough into Isaiah chapters 53 through like 57. And it's about a eunuch actually. Um, and what it must've been like to be a eunuch who is castrated and is brought like a sheep before its shearers. Um, and Philip actually says this part, this text is about Jesus and, but I like the eunuch's question because the eunuch is being a little selfish with the Bible and is reading himself and his own experience into the text. Mm-hmm. He's doing theology as survival. He has just visited the temple in Jerusalem, which was not built for him as an Ethiopian. Um, he has inserted himself in all sorts of spaces and texts that were not meant from him, meant for him from the beginning. Um, I think about uh, the Southern Freedom Movement or the Civil Rights Movement of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and how my ancestors took to the streets and said, we belong here, we built this country, and we deserve to be understood as full participating voting citizens in this democracy. Mm-hmm. That's theology of survival. Their faith, their theology motivated them to take to the streets. And for the people who didn't go to the streets, um, like many of kind of the unsung heroes of the movement, um, they fried chicken and had um, fish fry sales at churches and in their homes to raise money for people who were going to far-flung places across the country fighting for what was right. So I look at people throughout history who have done theology as a form of survival, not as a form of sport or luxury, but as a way to assert their humanity and their inherent worth before God and before other people. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's extremely powerful. I I I often this doesn't usually make it into the show, but I I often get very flummoxed by people's <laughs> answers like that. So mm. I, so I apologize if I flounder here for a second while I find my bearing. <laughs> um so much of what we, you know, everyone is exposed to on you know on on a daily basis with the with the way in which we consume media and create media now um is the sorts of brutal reality that a lot of people that are marginalized um either because of because of their race or because of their immigration status or because of um, be, because they're queer or a woman, um, we see that we see a lot of injustices um, constantly. Uh, as someone who is in the ministry, how how do you seek to you know help people to cope, um, and how do you? Um, and yeah, I guess that's that's really the central question. Just in and and how how do you how do you seek to to help people to, to cope in that? In I, I know that I, I know that this is the the thing ab- about today is that we are a lot of people that were blind now see because of social media, um, but that doesn't change the reality that that this it's the nakedness of the sort of um, insidious nature of of things and people in power right now is alarming. Um, so as someone that's in that's that that is a minister, how how do you help people to cope? Mm, well, you know, we try, I try to, um, I oversee liturgy at the cathedral. And so 
you know, we try to pick hymnody and Eucharistic texts and compose prayers that sets a tone for honesty about people's lives of we've begun, we've, we have started naming mental illness in our prayers at St. John's, uh, which I think is really important. It's something that shouldn't be hidden, something that people are dealing with on a daily basis. And, and taking that honesty, you know, from the liturgy into our, into my office with, you know, private pastoral conversations with people and letting people know, you know, the psalmist, the psalm, the book of Psalms has a range of voices before God. There are people who are preoccupied with praising God for being so beautiful and compelling and loving and wise and strong. And there are people who are, who are calling God to task, saying God is unfair and life is unfair. And why did I lose my child? And how are my bills going to get paid? And why do oppressors seem to always be successful? Um, and that's, that's a good model for us. That God is not afraid of our honesty. And the church should not be afraid of our honesty. Mm-hmm. So giving people permission to call God to task when they need to. Um, when life seems unfair, when it seems that you've gotten the, the short end of the stick and you're dealing with infertility or you're dealing with a negative amount in your bank account or overwhelming student loans or a mortgage that seems like it will never dissipate. Um, because sometimes that's where we're actually living 80 or, or 60% of the time. It's not always butterflies and frolicking through fields with God. It's often in the valley uh, where we meet God in, in the realest and most palpable sense. So I think a lot of my ministry is listening um, and in turn validating people's experiences mm-hmm. um, because the best ministers I've experienced have done that for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's something really powerful of just listening and validating. Absolutely. So contrary to, the, to, to that question, and maybe, or potentially an extension of it, um, what is it, that, what is it that, that in turn gives you hope and, and, and what is it that, that makes you want to continue to engage in this tradition that, that you're a part of? and that that you um have have chosen um it's it it is always an interesting to me it's always an interesting question because we we as we progress through life we we continue to sort of reaffirm things or we decide not to um and i mm. think that's one of the that's one of the things that is, has been interesting um in becoming a part of the episcopal tradition myself is that there is this repetition and it can become rote, but if you apply a bit of conscious thought to it, then, then there is something pretty profound about saying and reaffirming these things week after week. Um, so for you, what is it that, um, what is it that gives you hope and when, and, and makes you want to continue to, to reaffirm this tradition? Mm. That there's always something new there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've never experienced Christmas the same way two years in a row. Hmm. Um, I've never experienced the Easter vigil, which is the eve before Easter day, the same way. Um, that there might 
actually be a spiral element to the liturgical year, to the church year, to the sacred calendar uh, that we pick up on as we kind of revisit certain texts or readings or stories or holidays or holy days. Um, And there is a depth that may have not been visited in years prior um, that's offered to us each go around. If we're open to that, um, there's a way of hearing the good news about Jesus in a different way. I'm never the same um, when I hear the same story. And when I say I'm not the same, I mean, um, I may not be in the same mood. Um, I may not have the same challenges that I had when I heard the story before. So, you know, having a consciousness about I'm bringing a certain amount of baggage or experiences to the text and to a holy day that I may not have brought before. In the same way that going to the funeral of someone I don't know um, and hearing those same words at the funeral of a loved one is just two different things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the words are the same, but I'm not. Right. Um, And so being open to that, being open to be surprised by grace, surprised by love, surprised by joy, that I don't know everything, that I am small, um, and that God's ability to play a trick on me in the liturgy or when I'm at prayer is endless. And so hopefully growing my capacity to be attentive to the present moment um, is a discipline that I learn uh, by being regular at prayer and regular at church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I'm 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 glad that uh, it it seems that you have this this through line of um of a sense of you know wonder and reverence and awe um that that provides this this like sort of ability for things to exist in <laughs> um then it doesn't seem so as you said also previously, you know, this, this sense of rigidity, um, I, I feel like that's very important and, um, for a lasting sort of sense of faith. <laughs> so that's, it's very inspiring and, and, uh, very, um, definitely something to aspire to, I think for someone that is engaging with their faith in a, in a, in a consistent way. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, hear, hear that. Yeah. I would like to share, um, a beautiful text that a, um, one of our staff members shared with me. Um, and it's called Lipney's if I can find it. Um, it's actually in it's our interim organist at the cathedral. Oh, where's the text? And it, it, it really deals with faith and doubt in such a succinct way. Hmm. This this is the preface to litanies. It says, and of course it was originally written in French. <laughs> When in its distress, the Christian soul can find no more words to invoke God's mercy. It repeats endlessly the same litany. For reason has reached its limit. Only faith can take one further. Hmm. 
And I know that there have been multiple times in my life when reason has reached its limit. And I rely on those litanies, on those prayers that my parents and grandparents taught me, those songs, that music. Um, And it's only faith, only trust, only a bit of um, being naive in some ways. It takes me deeper and further. Um, not by choice, but by necessity. Hmm. That I'm that I'm being held, that I'm being loved, that I'm being surrounded by love, by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's also very powerful. Well, Broderick, um, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and talking a bit about your experience, about your, uh, about so much. I'm, I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to talk to you. Um, where could people find you online? Where can they find you locally um, or elsewhere? And then anything else you might like to plug? You can find me online at twitter.com slash Broderick Greer where I tweet regularly, <laughs> which is an understatement. He's a very solid um, follow. <laughs> you can also follow me on Facebook at Broderick Greer. I have a public page there. I'm not going to accept anyone's um, friend requests on my personal Facebook. Um, I have a website, broderickgreer.com. I also have a podcast called Mile High Theology, where we talk about the playful um, interplay between faith and theology and contemporary life. Um, So those are the main places you can find me. Great. Well, Broderick, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Of course, it's a joy.